All right, welcome on into the show. My name's Danny Gallagher, and I'm joined by the snare campaign provocateur, the baby New Year himself. It's Benny Horowitz. <laughs> What's up, dude? I love that the the year I was born, you weren't even you weren't even considered yet. I may have been. <laughs> so, is that a real thing? Are there like quite a few babies and birthdays that land on like? September or like mid-August to mid-September because of New Year's sex? Is that an actual phenomena that exists? You know what's hilarious about this? So I did the whole baby New Year thing because it's like a famous like sequel to uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer about the baby oh. New Year. Oh, who are you talking to? <laughs> <laughs> I was watching like Woody Allen pictures on Christmas. I don't know about this. <laughs> I'm learning a lot. I learn more every year. Oh, it's funny. It's funny. It's so, really yeah, bad. No, I though. definitely, yeah. I went and I went. I went Lieutenant Dan with it. You know. <laughs> but yes, I, I, I would definitely assume you know the champagne starts flowing and there's a lot of August, late July birthdays. Nice time to have a child too. You know, good time to bring a kid home. Nice yeah. and cool. Good weather. Everyone's chill. That's that. Yeah. Just Denny, keep that in mind for your future. Okay. Oh, if you I, ever just. If you ever decide to get one going, yeah, just do it. Do it late winter, late December. It sounds nice. Christmas babies, you know. Well, get a little eggnog in you, kid. You know. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we have zero time to waste today. It is the most important show we do all year. We are saying goodbye to 2021 in Peace. the only way the tune-up can. We're going to go through the ten biggest stories that we touched on in 2021. And, you know, we'll go back in the vault a little bit. Love it. Let's do it. Let's go through this fun year. All right. So 2021 was way better than 2020, I think, for a lot of people. Obviously, the world's still a mess. But there was a little bit of daylight. We saw a little bit of daylight. Um, So we're going to go through the 10 stories. The number 10 story that brought us the most joy this year and really kept going all year was when we were introduced to the idea of Silk Sonic, the Anderson oh, Pac, Bruno Mars collaboration. Heart. We got one song, and then later in the year we got an album. It was fantastic. But when we first heard it, we were pretty stoked about it. Yeah, and I think when we first talked about it, all we had was leave the door open. Yeah. We had the first single, the first video. I, you know... My assumption at that point was that they were leaning into it in a real kind of, you know, shaft sort of way, like like taking a genre that you fully respect and love, but doing it with like a little bit of a sense of humor, but doing it really well, really well executed. So I was like, okay, they have this one song, this video is perfect. How's this record going to pan out? I'm I'm serious. Song after song is like, it's like a tip of the cap to like a different artist or like a different era of, of funk or soul or R&B. Like they all have these vibes that take from different things and they all seem like kind of nods to different people. So the album's great. It's so well put together. I've been drumming along to it constantly. Silk Sonic's been an ab- absolute delight. And to top it off, I had heard a rumor that the entire project uh is anderson pock um paying off a gambling debt to bruno <laughs> mars apparently bruno mars likes to throw some money down the table he's probably got a lot more than anderson pack i'd imagine 
and apparently got into him and made him make a record with him as payment. I, I don't know if this is a true rumor, but you heard it here first. <laughs> so our number 10 story for 2021, the introduction of Silk Sonic. On this day in 2021, Bruno Mars and Anderson Pock released their first oh. single as the duo known as Silk Sonic. I love <sighs> that. I have no idea what the whole album is going to sound like, uh. but this sounds sensual as hell. I'm glad you mentioned this, actually, yeah. because I guess I'm a predictable person. Because, <laughs> you know, friend of the program, singer of Mercy Union, Jared Hart, mm -hmm. had texted me. Uh, a link to the article about a week ago saying that these two announced this project and were putting out a record. And subsequently, like four people within 24 hours afterwards <laughs> sent me the same exact link. So I think people know I love Bruno Mars. They know I love Anderson Pack. They know I love funk. Mm -hmm. and I have a feeling that this is going to be soulful and it's going to be funky with these two. Remember, Anderson Pack is a drummer by yeah. trade. Mm -hmm. So. I think this is going to be off the charts. I'm excited you brought this up. Man. I'm giddy with excitement. I love Anderson so much because before I met you, Ben, he was actually like the first drummer from like a band that I ever met. He was at Sirius one day. Nope. Oh. He's performing in like the little cube that we have there. Yeah, There's yeah. like four people watching this. I'm out on my lunch break. I'm like, why aren't people paying more attention to this guy? And even before he was like super well known, he just had that element of cool that is just so yeah. undeniable. So I'm oh, really yeah, excited yeah. about this. These are magnetic, magnetic human beings. Oh my god. Even just a couple days ago, you know, sometimes when I'm playing drums and I'm practicing, yeah. you know, the same way uh, when you're shooting hoops, sometimes you create these scenarios. You're like, last 10 <laughs> seconds, Bruce Bowen's on me. He's glued all over, over the top. You know, one of those things. I do that with drums sometimes. And the other day, I was actually down in my basement, literally playing a Bruno Mars arena show. Wow. And specifically in a foreign arena. I don't know why, but they weren't chanting in American. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and, and I was playing drums to a huge crowd with Bruno Mars dancing in front of me and the whole crew dressed up. I'm in like a nice suit, close my eyes. So I do that too sometimes when I'm playing drums. And Bruno's one of those ones where like, I don't want to really tour that much anymore, but if Bruno was like, hey, six-year world tour, here's the keys. <laughs> Sorry, kids. You're going to international school, you know? <laughs> bring them with you. Do the whole Jesse Marsh thing. Or bring your kids on, homeschool them, all that uh, stuff. Oh, I, I hate to break it to you, Denny. That's expensive. <laughs> the people who get to do that yeah. are not the uh, drummers who get hired to go Matt on tour. Matt Damon. <laughs> yeah. Not not gonna happen. Bruno might get his own bus. Pac might get his own bus. Benny Random Horowitz. drummer you hire off a podcast, not get his own bus. If Benny, if your claim to fame is this podcast, we have to have a different conversation because I've definitely brought you down then. Oh, Benny. <laughs> don't bring me down. From one group that made a bunch of money in 2021 to another group that's just starting to get paid. Benny, what is your number nine story of 2021? Uh, it's it's what I was uh, hoping for for years and finally happened as a result of uh, college sports finally getting wrung out by the NBA and various leagues was was the NIL ruling and uh, college athletes uh, finally being able to make money off their name, image and likeness. I knew this was wrong uh, back in the 90s when I was playing college football games and I'm like, wait, 
I know that dude. Everything's the same except his name's not on the back. That's weird. And, it, you know, it's always been this uh, juggling act between, you know, oh, we're given an education at room and board. Sometimes true. I'm not taking totally away from that argument. But it is amazing to me the kind of liberties people will give 18-year-olds in this country and won't give them other things. When it comes to making your own money, evening the balance a little bit, taking some money from the top, sure, 18-year-olds are dangerous. You know, when it uh, goes to fighting in the military, buying guns, smoking cigarettes, any number of other things that kill you voluntarily, they could give a shit (laughs) that you are 18 years old. So I wanted to see it for years. I was finally glad to see it. And we just saw the uh, the great results of it with uh, Deion Sanders at Jackson State signing uh, Travis Hunter, spurning Florida State, one of the big dog schools, to go to a um, historically black college. And 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 I don't think that happens without Deion Sanders paving the way for for this guy to make a lot of money while he's there for a year or two. So uh, was all for it. Happy to see it. So that is the number nine story. College athletes finally getting theirs. Senator Jerry Moran of Kansas introduced legislation on Wednesday afternoon that would allow athletes to sign endorsement deals in the future with some restrictions on what type of deals they could enter. The bill, if passed, would also increase the medical coverage that many of the wealthiest athletic departments have to provide for their athletes and establish rules that would allow their players to transfer to new schools and enter professional drafts without losing eligibility. Huge. If Moran's bill is passed, athletes would be able to hire representation and sign endorsement deals, I believe, while still in college. Uh, The athletes Mm -hmm. uh, would not be allowed to endorse products during or immediately before or after team events. Schools, conferences, associations such as the NCAA would uh, also be allowed to prohibit athletes from signing endorsement deals with companies that go against their standards. Athletes would be required to report all endorsement deals contracts to the school within a week of signing them, and recruits would need to provide what deals they have to the college and the conference before starting college. Benny, what do you make of this? Um, So, yeah. So, obviously, we've talked about this before in the past. I, I am... Obviously, not obviously, I am for the compensation of these athletes. Uh-huh. I'd like that to be clear before we start. I think it should have happened a long time ago, and particularly in the big sports, the big conferences, the fact that uh, these players haven't been able to accept 20 bucks to go get food this entire time has been like an absolute travesty. Now, of course, leave it, though, to congressmen and the NCAA to start rigging a system that is going to completely still lend every advantage to the top. Okay. And let me explain to you why. So first off the idea, there's a secondary part of this, which is medical insurance. And now they would have to uh, require athletic departments that make at least $20 million annually to cover out of pocket or deductible expenses and then schools that make at least $50 million annually will have to cover those costs for up to four years and cover a number of other costs. So right there, you're already bottlenecking every single top talent to the top money-making schools. Because just like a corporation or a business, 
you're allowing these bigger programs to offer more than the smaller programs to go there. So even though it's good these guys are getting medical insurance, you're also still managing to figure out a way to benefit the top institutions and only the top players. And to think uh, if you're not, let's take, for instance, the couple players who decided to go to historically black colleges this year. Do they still do that knowing if they go to North Carolina, they'll be getting full medical coverage for five years after their athletic careers, or they can go to Howard and get none of it. So that's rigging something in place there to kind of funnel the top talent to the top schools. Now, secondly, as you mentioned, the prohibiting of athletes to sign endorsement deals that go against their student code of conduct. Now, I mean, fuck, if that doesn't open up all sorts of murky water for them to now be able to control who you are representing and to think that these colleges aren't going to come part and parcel with endorsement deals in tow. So it's going to be like, hey, where UNC, come take a visit. You know what I mean? Hey, guess what? Nike's cool with us. You know what I mean? Because their campaign's cool. But, you know, we're not into Reebok is against the code of conduct because they do something else. Like there is like a, a murky, arbitrary sort of water that you're delivering again. And to make my secondary point, it's also funneling the control of what they're going to be able to do to the top. And these are the things that I can't help but imagine the politicians who are putting this together are, you know, communicating with the NCAA and their sponsorships and their endorsements and coming up with a plan that works for everyone. But again, it's just not that like fundamental change that I think needs to happen. And once you start over legislating this thing 20 years from now, it's going to be some bizarre convoluted system like we have with our own medical system for a private person or something like that. So I guess I was hoping to see a more sort of sweeping reform that kind of uh, didn't funnel all these things to the top. But as I'm sure you're going to say, in a democracy, a little bit of change is better, and it's better than what we had earlier. I can't agree with that. I just think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of murky water here that can turn into something else. I mean, the most important thing here is that these guys are getting paid right yeah because i mean i've seen too many people that i've you know known worked with that have you know they've they've played an injury happens and then the school's like see ya maybe we'll cover your tuition maybe we don't so immediately you gotta state that there's a way more protections for these athletes than there were now you know you brought up the code of conduct which i think is a very interesting thing there are schools like you can't have, say, like a running back for Notre Dame have like a deal with like, I don't know, like a weed company, like Bang Bros. Yeah. Yeah. Like out here just being representing things that are not in line with the university. Now, if you don't want to go there, right, you can absolutely choose, hey, I'm going to go to Ohio State and rep whatever company I want to. That is your right. That's part of the pitch. Now, the the thing that's interesting and the entire reason that they're doing this is the NBA, once again, is leading the charge. They see they're losing 
you know, I think of, of the top 10 last year, seven of the guys went to the G League, yeah. which is professional sports. I think they're making 250K a year. Yeah, G League Ignite is getting more uh, TV time than top 25 colleges this year. Exactly. So the NCAA had no choice to try to protect their bottom line because that's what it's about. It is, it's in, in a way, a lot of laws get done. It is protecting your own, own ass by looking like you're helping somebody else. That's and right. they're only doing it because they're being pushed. I mean, ideally for a guy who's trying to go to the NBA, right? The G League or going to Australia is a much better route than going to college. I get the education, right? But if you're trying to go to the league, you can do that on your own time. Like like there's online college and stuff like that. So these guys are, are trying to get paid. I applaud that we're seeing progress for guys who are not guys and girls who are not going to be professional athletes. I think this is huge for them. We're not going to have an incident like the UCF kicker who got kicked off the football team because his YouTube page blew up. It's not going to be like trickle down economics, but I, I do think that the tide is going to raise if and if people can a market whatever they have to sell at the highest level. I I think this is going to do more good than bad. Hope so. Off to a flying start here on our Benny and Denny's rocking New Year's Eve, so to speak. <laughs> All right, number eight story. Oh, this was this was a fun episode. That had some unintended after-effect consequences, and it was the reported reboot of the Patrick Swayze vehicle Roadhouse. But what was yeah. hilarious is so we released this episode the same day that Taylor Swift released her 10-minute version of All Too Well, which is famously about Jake Gyllenhaal and who mm. is uh, reported to be the star in Roadhouse 2 Electric Boogaloo? Jake Gyllenhaal himself. Yeah. This panned out. You know, I was really shocked, as usual, to see the response to the Roadhouse story of being like, no, please don't touch this classic piece of cinema that shouldn't be ruined. It should be put in a vault for all to see. Like, seriously, people need to have a fucking sense of humor and remember the time and the place and what things were. And like, I still I, I stand by every point I made the first time, which is live a little, have some fun. Let me see Jake Gyllenhaal rip someone's throats out as uh, as Dalton by the lake. I don't even care if it's a total read. Like, just take the whole same story and just give them cooler cars and trucks and bigger guns, and Roadhouse will still be awesome. So uh, I'm into it. Have you had any more thought on who's the uh, who's the musician who plays at the bar in the new Roadhouse? Where did we land on last time? I don't know why Can, this sticks in my head, but I, I I thought the name Kenny Loggins came up. <laughs> it certainly did that, but I'd be up for it. What about Tim Barry in there? Let's just Ooh, get Tim. Yes, Barry. let's do it. Let's get Tim in the new Roadhouse somehow. I'm putting it out into the ether. If for some reason the casting people for Roadhouse are listening to the tune-up year roundup, I'd like to see Tim Barry in that in that part. Thank you. So the number. Number eight story, 2021, Roadhouse 2, Electric Boogaloo. Sources tell Deadline that MGM's Roadhouse remake is gaining momentum. That's right, the Patrick Swayze picture. Maybe rebooted? Who knows? Let's keep going. Um, the reboot has Jay Gyllenhaal starring in the picture. Doug Lyman of the Bourne trilogy. 
famously got his start producing Swingers in talks to direct the picture. While a date for production is still TBD, uh, Hall is about to shoot uh, Guy Ritchie's next picture, and D- Doug Lyman is currently preparing his next picture called Everest. You know, there's been a bunch of drafts floating around about a Roadhouse reboot for a while, but this seems to be, you know, once you got the director, once you got your bankable star, uh, things tend to happen pretty quickly. So, Benny, Roadhouse reboot, what do you think? Well, this is very sacred territory to me. As anyone who's known me a long time knows I had, sadly, because he's no longer with us, an unhealthy infatuation with Patrick Swayze and his films, Roadhouse being a big one of them. It's at like the height, you know, you may have learned from this show. I I love tongue-in-cheek comedy. I love dark things that could never happen. It's why I'm such a big fan of things like Anchorman and things like Roadhouse, because it's fantasy. It's like it's like Shaft. It, it needs to be acted out and played 100% seriously to be as hilarious as it is. And Roadhouse is like the king of that movie. But I've sent this to my good friend, who is a movie buff and someone who knows I love Patrick Swayze. I say, how are we feeling about this? He goes, sacrilege, unnecessary, unrequested. You know, people are mad. They don't want this. And, you know, he, he read me a, a quote from a book, Pain Don't Hurt, Meditations on Roadhouse. <laughs> and the quote in it is, Roadhouse is the story of one bouncer's quest to free a small town from the iron fist of the guy who was on the verge of opening the area's first jc penny over half a dozen men will die for this (laughs) (laughs) so this is why i need this movie to be remade like you don't want to be a fundamentalist for silly things you know what i mean you want to let the next generation have silly things and i'm not like we're not talking about citizen kane here (laughs) if you want to give roadhouse another stab please do it let the modern generation have their own version of it and to top it off, I kind of like the Gyllenhaal casting. You know, he's, he's not your typical uh, mainstream Hollywood actor. He takes on a lot of bizarre parts that you really wouldn't want to take on where he looks. He, basically, he's dark. The guy's dark. You could tell by the things he takes. Roadhouse is kind of a very dark and weird movie. If you take out the real bravado Patrick Swayze element out of it. It's pretty fucked up, actually. Yeah. So I could see where you could just go darker, go weird, go Hall. I like it. I'm here for it. See, I like Hall a lot. That's why I think this is actually going to be really good because yeah. you got Lyman, who, you know, everything he touches is, for the most part, really good. Uh, and then Hall is a smart, like him Him and his sister make some of the smartest choices in Hollywood. But that being said, it has to be so different than the original because I don't think, you know, with, with, with all due respect to Jake Hall, I don't think he can have like a five second shot where it's just like just his face looking at someone and he's like, and so... Without that, what like that movie is like? A, but the real question is, can Gyllenhaal handle get, six seconds of plain bare ass? 
I think so. <laughs> Danny, number seven this year is our good friend, your local recycling man, Aaron Rodgers, having his, uh, what would you call it? Song and dance? Soap opera? With, uh, with a disease, with a vaccine, with the media? Um, showing himself to be what most people thought he was, which is like one of the more self-absorbed human beings that there are kind of doesn't see past his own face not untypical of people in his position but you know i think one of the interesting things from this story and i know it's not what you thought like you know i'd like to say that aaron Rodgers is now like oh this is the nfl's pariah you know fuck this guy he's out everybody hates him he lost every he's lost nothing and he is absolutely getting the Kobe Bryant post-affair treatment. It's like when, when Kobe got tossed the ball and started throwing up 50 points again, paid that lady off, no one gave a shit. It's just true. I was there. I've seen it. And I've seen other people get fucking destroyed because they came out and they went one for 12. Oh, that guy's an asshole. Aaron Rodgers comes back from this little snafu keeps playing, keeps the Packers rolling. They're going to the playoffs. He's probably going to be the MVP. He hasn't even lost the State Farm commercial. No one cares. All you got to do is win and keep playing well, and no one cares. We're all so transparent, Denny. This can be the first episode of the tune-up that Kyrie Irving ever listens to, and is going to be like, that's my guy. Just win. And that's all, all Kyrie's trying to do. <laughs> I mean, it's going to work the same for him. It is. If they come back and James Harden and Kevin Durant and Kyrie just start putting on a show and doing – no one gives a shit, man. So number seven, Aaron Rodgers still getting the King Midas treatment. Arguably the biggest story in sports this week is news that Green Bay Packers quarterback Aaron Rodgers tested positive for COVID-19 and also that he's unvaccinated. Prior to the season, he got up and asked about his vaccination status. And boy, this sly motherfucker right here. He's like, <laughs> I'm immunized, which everyone's like, oh, it's just a synonym for I'm yeah, vaccinated. Yeah. No, apparently Aaron is not vaccinated, um, which stinks. You know, this story hurts me. Right, because one of my first jobs in radio was a local Wisconsin show, the Aaron Rodgers Radio Hour. So, like, I got mm. to know Aaron when he was dating Olivia Munn, and I always thought he was kind of a stand-up guy. But uh, it just goes to show what, what people feel of the vaccines, the vaccination, and like having to do this. Um, Aaron Rodgers has uh, not been fined for violating all the COVID protocols, though a report by NFL Network yesterday said that uh, he's been following uh, the unvaccinated mandate for players around the Packers facility. So I'm not really sure what to believe here, but Benny, I'm sure that this is just the tip of the iceberg of athletes lying about being vaccinated because the distrust from this from a certain section of the country is quite large. So how deep do you think this runs? And do you think Aaron Rodgers is the biggest name that's lying about being unvaccinated? Or do you think uh, we're just reaching the tip of the iceberg here? I mean, he's one of the biggest names. Yeah. So, you know, you know, a lot of the guys in the NBA, we we actually know are, you know, like like a lot of the people have just come out. I am this. And so, you know, he might be the iceberg because he's he's one of the biggest names there is. Um, but the idea that he's like the only one. No way. 
And, you know, I listened to that same press conference. I listened back to it now. And like you said, you sly <laughs> motherfucker. Like you got asked the question like art. And he was like, yeah, like uh, actually he almost said yes. He I'm Ron Burgundy. <laughs> you know, he essentially just like lied um, up there. And, you know, I'm not sure, you know, again, like we're never going to find out why. Um, these guys are just going to tow this like personal choice line over and over and over again. They're never going to tell you the actual reason. There's a couple things to this that, you know, this is going to be talked about a million different ways. So let me try to find an angle that's actually fairly fucking interesting. And, you know, one part of it is it seems as if the players who just say like exactly what they're doing and why isn't particularly newsworthy like like let's say like jonathan isaac mm -hmm. you know like true he's not active right now so maybe that's keeping him out of it but that guy was just like yeah i'm not getting vaccinated and this is why and even though people had a day or two of vitriol where they're like fuck jonathan isaac or whatever like the story went away and it was no longer newsworthy and this is where i gotta wonder like Guys like Aaron Rodgers, he knows as well as anyone. They're fucking heels. Uh, if there's anything I learned from this Jake Paul interview yesterday, <laughs> people either need to love you or hate you these days. You don't want uh, a middle ground, you know? And that's how you get clicks, and that's how you garner interest. So with Aaron Rodgers being a heel, you know, he's being so shady and aloof to kind of create storylines and keep himself here and have this BS drama. I mean, I guess he would have preferred not getting COVID and the storyline being him winning a Super Bowl. But, you know, this is what happens when you don't get vaccinated. <laughs> Sorry, guy. Um, but the way he's being about it is, you know, so like disingenuous and creepy and like not saying what you actually feel and, walking on eggshells because you're fucking kind of like a media like for someone who claims to be such like i cut through the media i say my piece you know like aaron Rodgers has always been really kind of like forthright in that way so you know why don't you keep it up like like stand on your own fucking laurels tell people why you're not doing it if you're not doing it and be judged on that you know, like, stop with this fucking murky stuff. Like, that's that's the thing I, I hate the most. And then again, you know, I, the way they talk about it and how aloof they are about it, it just screams entitlement to me. You know, every time I see these motherfuckers talking about, oh, you know, my personal choice and I respect this and I respect, like, I, I just see this, like, smug, entitled attitude towards the whole thing. You know, where, like, just because you're young and you happen to not care then you just don't give a shit be fucking honest you know what i mean you're entitled you're rich you're young you have access to everything you could possibly want you're not afraid so you're not gonna do it and that comes from a place of privilege and entitlement fucking just be what you are and admit it you know like this is what's really starting to bother me about this conversation now is like Everyone's starting to make it so murky and great. It's not fucking murky. I made a decision to get the fucking thing. I didn't want it. Yeah. I, I don't even put fucking shampoo and conditioner in my head because of how much I don't like chemicals in my body. I made a choice. 
I didn't want the fucking thing and I got it because I made a choice. Now you tell me why you made your fucking choice. Like that's the thing that's really starting to bother me about these people. I'm also sick of athletes who, let's be honest, you know, I went to a high school that produces a decent amount of athletes. I've gone on to different professional sports. And these are the same guys who in biology class would want to cheat off your homework. The very <laughs> class where you learn about what mRNA in mRNA is, which is what the vaccine is. And now that now they're like, I want to do my own research, man, if you pay attention to a high school biology class, you're going to learn what a fucking vaccine is. So don't yeah. tell me that you need to do your own research because that opportunity was when you were in high school, but you were too busy trying to chase whatever. No, he's too busy throwing <laughs> footballs. Like, that's the thing. And girls. Just come talk, on, come on. talk about what you're fucking yeah. good at. You're a football player. Like, you're awesome at that. Yeah. I'll listen to you talk about how to run an offense all fucking day long. Because that's your, your field of expertise. You know? Like, that's what you should talk about. You're, you're 100% right about that. That's a funny analogy. Benny, I love the way that this is working out because the, we're going to keep it in Wisconsin for the number six story. And this is this was one of the highlights of my year. One of the greatest sporting moments of my life, the Milwaukee Bucks winning an NBA championship, Giannis going for 50, Giannis etching himself into history. But it should also be noted that the, that the NBA Finals was a massive super spreader event in the time after it. There's been some reports that, Maybe the NBA's COVID protocol wasn't exactly the same for everybody. Um, there was rumors mm. about Giannis maybe having COVID and then being able allowed to play in the finals. So a lot of speculation, uh, keeping it Wisconsin, keeping it COVID-related. So the Milwaukee Bucks winning the championship. Can't take anything away from it. Amazing series, amazing run. So that's my number six story of 2021, the Milwaukee Bucks winning the NBA championship. I love it. Great to see. You know, if there's anyone I like to root for, it's them. Here's my question. One question about this. Yeah. Historically, if we ever get out of COVID <laughs> and things get normal again, this is now an if because I just I don't fucking know. But will these last two championships be viewed in the same way as other championships? Will the Lakers bubble? Will the Bucks shorten season with, you know, a lot of injured players and stuff like that? Will these championship runs be considered the same? I mean, I think we're kind of disoriented, right? Because we go into a global pandemic and LeBron is easily the best player in the NBA. Um, and it's like not even a conversation. And we're coming out of it and he's 37 and, and, and almost kind of hobbled. So... I feel like we've been trying to make sense of the NBA during a time that doesn't make any sense. So mm. I think it's too soon to answer that. Mm, fair. Smart, smart, reasoned answer. Not good for radio. I know it's not. But but that's why we have <laughs> these irrational clips. So the number six and number five story of 2021 is the Bucks winning the NBA championship and Giannis potentially being the face of the NBA. Yeah, I mean, number five story's got to be the fact that Giannis is pretty much the face of the NBA now. The thing that's standing in his way at this point is, you know, this healthy second coming of Kevin Durant, who's sort of come back to reclaim his throne. You know, I've said this before on the show. I mean, if you rewind 
to to 2018 to 2019 when you know uh, uh the Warriors team started slipping a little and KD left or, or right towards the end of KD being on the Warriors the conversation around the NBA was KD or LeBron and it was starting to get to the KD is maybe eclipsing LeBron thing just because of how uh, outrageous of a scorer he was becoming so uh I think we all kind of slept on that and, you know, handed the reins to Giannis before KD was maybe willing to let him go. But I think the conversation is short. And at this point, the list has to be who? Giannis, Curry, KD, LeBron still in the bubble here, of course. And I don't know. I mean, Jokic as far as like playing goes, but he's not still a face, you know? So it's still that short list and Giannis should be, proud to be on it so the number five is uh Giannis being the face of the NBA I'm Ron Burgundy <laughs> what is your takeaway for what Giannis is in this league after this championship yeah he's the face of the league now I think I think it's like pretty simple what just happened um we didn't see like uh we didn't see someone falling into this. Mm. You know what I mean? We didn't see somebody who you're like, oh, go, good. He got one. We saw someone go and take one. Yeah. Which is at this age, usually the sign that there's more to come. And I have like no uh, inkling in my body to think that this guy's going to slow down in any way for the next few years. And why should I? So with the way, you know, LeBron you know, is hitting his age and tailing off a little. And uh, even if the Lakers have a successful run, you'd have to guess that AD could be the primary piece of that moving forward. Um, you know, Kevin Durant has not re-cemented himself in that way yet. Steph Curry hasn't re-cemented himself in that way yet. I think the road is still there for players like that. But at this point in time, when you just watched one of the singular talents in the NBA not only get through the playoffs, but substantially grow and step up and show things they weren't even capable of before the playoffs. Yeah. I think he's the face of the league. And to top it off, have you heard a negative thing about Giannis? No. In the last two, three days, four days, week, you know, like in this day and age, where, I mean, literally, you can take the most classically good thing that exists in the world. You could make a post about chocolate cake. You could make a post about ice cream. You could make a post about, like, babies laughing. Uh, you know, you could make a post about kittens cuddling together and napping. It's going to be some asshole who has something to say about it. You know what I mean? Nothing is safe these days. And the fact that I've gone through the last three days not seeing a negative comment from a pundit, an opposing fan, uh, you know, another player, you know, he's even getting ultimate respect from the rest of the league and other players. Everyone knows what he did. It's remarkable. And I think what just happened is probably the best thing the NBA could have possibly asked for because we're coming out of this era that the biggest complaint of the era is super teams. 
It is. It's these ideas that people built their own championship teams and they had an easier road and that uh, homegrown organic teams don't even stand a chance anymore, blah, blah, blah. And you literally just watched it turned on its ear, you know, uh, a, a city believing in a player, a player believing in a city, one of those random things that actually works and, and, and got there. And I think it's the best thing that possibly could happen in the league, even with uh, a smaller city like Milwaukee, but as you said, who has just this insane fan base. So for my long-winded question, yes, Giannis Antetokounmpo is now the face of the NBA. See, okay, man, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to stick with the optimistic here. This is an all-time moment. This was an all-time performance, um, and he, he became only the seventh player ever to go for 50 points in an NBA Finals game. That's insane to me. I struggle with this conversation, and you know this, with the face of the league concept because I think it's so – and it like I know what it's rooted in. I, I know that it's rooted in the fact that Jerry West is the logo, and ever since then we've had to have a face of a league like Magic and Larry. We've had mm. to have, you know, like like Michael, LeBron, Kobe, like like all of those things, right? But I think it's like a really antiquated concept with how many stars we have in this league and how global it is. The face of the league for you may not be the face of the league for me. But in this particular moment, um, because like last year we, we were talking about Anthony Davis and LeBron and they get hurt. So it's such it's such a transient conversation that it's hard for me. But right now. Going forward, you know, he's, he's a bankable young star. I can see how people saying that he's the face of the league right now. Well, let's 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 make it easy for everyone, you know? Yeah. All it takes to correct this problem for, for everyone is to add an S. Just add an S and you go faces of the league. Mm. And then we're good, right? I mean, and it's true. I think you're right. Uh, and it stems from this Jerry West idea, the, you know, Jordan idea that we always are passing through an era and an era of basketball when, you know, certain people dominate for extended periods of time. I guess we're pretty accustomed to that. But, uh, you know, jumping off from the conversation we had last week, uh, we might be in a bit of a new NBA. Like all these efforts to have parity in the league might have worked a little. Mm. Uh, um, and the fact that we saw Toronto get through a couple years ago was sort of a you know, quickly patchwork team. And now you're seeing Milwaukee, a homegrown team pop through when a couple super teams failed, you know, it's uh, it, it's part of it, but the same thing that would come with parody is more stars, you know, and more teams who have the ability to break through in any given year. So I'm with you. Let's ditch the antiquated concept. I'm on board. And before we move on from this topic, man, I just, it is incredible to me over and, and oh, we and, can't move on. Okay. We can't move on. I got more. Okay, great. <laughs> the thing about the Giannis conversation is, you, you know how when you see something that is like a larger narrative and you kind of can't believe each step is happening. That's yeah. how I've really felt during this entire Giannis experience mm. uh, from the kid who stepped in and was dunking in three steps as he crossed midcourt and you're like oh my god this is amazing to see how is nobody talking about this to the way he transformed his body and i'm like oh my god to jumping over you know to that dunk 
in Madison Square Garden, and you're like, okay, this right. is so. It's been this constant evolution because I like watch every single Bucks game. Like it, it's kind of like when you see like a little kid, right? And you see them every day, and you're like, oh, this growth isn't surprising to me. And then, hmm. but as compared to the kid that you don't see, and you're like, oh my god, he's like, a, he's in high school already. That's <laughs> right. exactly what this is right now. I kind of can't believe where we are with this. Like, I never, like, I've loved Giannis since they drafted him. I was like, oh, this is super exciting, right? But I never thought he would be putting up Shaq numbers, yet alone Will Chamberlain numbers, yet alone that there's a guy who can put up Shaq and Wilt Chamberlain-type numbers in an NBA Finals. It's just, it, it's insane to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's wild. And I think, too, you know, what's interesting about what you're talking about is, but, you know, he was almost like, clay when he came in Mm, you know you knew he could do certain things but the way his game was gonna go was kind of anybody's guess in a lot of ways and if you asked me a couple years ago i would have envisioned his future maybe more as a passing big man you know like uh someone who does handle the ball all the time someone who will eventually adopt a three-point shot someone who may not need a point guard you know in the style of lebron james or something so in the last couple of years for him to completely redefine that as well and understand how useful his game can be close to the hoop, uh, you know, if, if this free throw thing keeps up, I mean, the Shaq comparison is right in the idea that I haven't seen a more unstoppable post player since where if you get the ball within a certain type of the hoop, I don't care how many guys you're throwing on him. He's either putting it down or he's getting it fouled. That's it, you know? And deal with that if you can. <laughs> so I want to bring up one other thing, okay? Yeah. You've been on Instagram this morning? A little bit. Have you seen Giannis's Instagram stories? Oh, I watched his Instagram live yesterday. Yeah. Okay. From Chick-fil-A. Okay. So I want to talk about this. Yeah. I want to talk about him going to Chick-fil-A. I don't know what a chicken mini is. What is it, like a slider? I think it's like nuggets, right? Oh, those are nugs. I think so. Okay, I didn't know. I thought it was like a White Castle style (laughs) slider. I've never been to a Chick-fil-A for a number of reasons, but moving past that. (laughs) Now, the thing I want to investigate about this video on Instagram, there's some layers to it that really show, I think, one of the reasons why Giannis is so easy to like. The first thing I notice is that there's just it's a guy with pure joy, Mm -hmm. right? He's out there, he's driving himself, he's talking to the people, and you can see that there's like there's no walls up, you know what I mean? That guy really seems to not see himself in a different light than all the people around him. And that's really nice. It's something that's always attracted me to athletes or musicians or stars of any kind, you know, like the idea that yes, you are uniquely great at something, but you're still a human on this earth. That's important to me, and it's nice to see. And when you see him out there, there's no script. There's nothing fake about it. It's just a really like open and honest dude out in the public, which I really appreciate. Second thing I appreciate, clearly a guy who does drive through a lot <laughs> and clearly a person who drives themselves through drive through. Like he knew the protocol, you know, he knew exactly when to order. He knew the timing. He knew how to order which again is an indication that Giannis is a man out there in the streets. Okay. Third thing that impressed me, he asked permission 
for the woman taking his order to put her on camera. Very classy. Not many people his age in that scenario would immediately consider another person and their feelings and what they would like. So the idea that in the midst of this mania and him trying to do this video, knowing 150,000 people are watching, and he still takes the time to be like, hey, do you mind if I put you on camera? I mean, come on, class. Now, fourth thing I like, yeah. the drink order. Mm, yeah, let's okay? get Okay, a large, no ice, half Sprite, half lemonade. Now, A, I appreciate the uniqueness. That actually sounds pretty good. You know, like a nice, sweet, like bubbly Sprite. I'm kind of into it. It's actually a European style beverage almost because mm. they make like fruit drinks with bubbles there. So I'd imagine he might have grown up on something that tastes similar. But the thing about it that that showed me something was no ice is the sign of a person who came with no money. OK, really? and anyone who has to scrape dollars learns this trick and you learn it young. Because it's the classic trick of the soft drink industry to fill your damn cup with ice, throw this tiny little bit of syrup in, and then you're just basically getting slightly sugared soda water that is not worth the price. No ice, you're getting a lot more bang for your buck. And again, it's proof that Giannis is a man of the people. I think at this point, you're seeing him do these chants, uh, bucks and six with all the people on the street. Guy could be fucking mayor. Senator, governor, bring him up. And before we leave Giannis for the year, Denny, I'd like to bring up that story of this innocent story about a young man teaching Giannis how to dunk Oreos into milk, illustrating the story of how when he was a kid, he couldn't even afford Oreos and he doesn't want cars or shoes. He just wants Oreos and he just wants to dunk them into milk. And he'll now do this forever and be forever indebted to this young child who taught him that there's like this purity to Giannis that he's either one of the great politicians I've ever seen, or he's just this really kind of like pure sweet guy. who has got his morals, right? So that, and then I also noticed another funny thing about him. You notice that his brother is in a lot of these commercials. I mean, they're not asking his brother to be on it. You know what I mean? Giannis is using the power card in the Adele Spotify kind of way. Like, you want me to do this commercial? Little bro comes and he gets 100 grand too. Let's go. I love that kind of baller move for family. It's so obvious, but so cool. So to wrap up number five, Giannis, mayor, senator, president, let's go for it. It's funny. I was going through uh, the voice memos on, on, on my phone, and it's, some of it go back to the Milwaukee days and press conferences. And uh-huh. I, I, I had one from Media Day 2015. And you, you know how we always used to start off with a joke? This one was him being like, um, what's Obama's favorite uh, karaoke song? And like people are like, oh, Jesus. Like, where, where's he going? And he's like, Obama self. <laughs> Classic. Good. He's good. <laughs> Kid's good. Not to say that Giannis is a warm-up act for anybody, but our number four story of 2021 is this Get Back Beatles documentary that we talked about a few weeks ago and how it really kind of pivoted and changed how we perceive the Beatles breakup, uh, how there was a lot more 
George Harrison, then Yoko Ono, which was the tabloid thing for years. So the number four story that we get into in detail, Benny gives some great insight here about band dynamics and what all of this means about how we write Beatles history going forward. So the number four clip, Beatles doc, right here. The epic three-part series directed by Peter Jackson hit Disney Plus on Thanksgiving. Uh, told the stories of the, the making of the Beatles' 1970 album, Let It Be, uh, which they had a working title, Get Back. Uh, draws material from the original documentary uh, captured by Michael, Michael Lindsay Hogg in the 1970s. Um, the final cut covers the 21 days in studio with the Beatles uh, as they rehearse for the upcoming album, concert, and film project and climaxes with the full 42-minute rooftop concert. So, Benny, there's a lot to get, but I just want, uh, before we dive into the minutiae of this, what were your initial takeaways from this doc? I, I mean, I was quite, you know, I think as everyone just initially starting to watch it is a little like, it's a little stunning to even uh, imagine it's real, you know, because the footage is so old and so personal you know like and so well recorded that it almost looks staged and it takes like a minute to get used to it. you're like wow this is actually real like i'm actually watching the beatles like not only record a song write a song like literally from the ground up from from you know seed inception idea to 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 how they work through it in a room uh was just fascinating and i gotta give off the bat Peter Jackson credit, you know, and whoever worked on this film, because I think it could have been so easy to take like a narrative approach with it more, you know, where almost at first I was expecting like a narrator to come on to almost dictate the story and tell me the story. And like, you know, which I think would, of course, allude to like a little bit of opinion and a little bit of maybe subjectivity. So I like the fact that it's presented as if you're just sitting in the room, you know, like, like where one of those Hari Krishna guys, like in the corner, <laughs> just like, just like watching the performance. Like that's how it's presented. Um, and I really quite like that. And I think it's a very, uh, also honest and cool way of watching, um, watching a band work, you know, even to the point where it gets like grueling and slow and annoying because that's what it is sometimes. You know that I'm, I'm fascinated by how, how the entire creative process works, especially with, with these records. Um, for the people that were saying, oh, seven hours is too long, just grow up. That, that, <laughs> that, that just shows that you've never created something in your entire life or edited. Do you realize what, what, what Peter Jackson did here? He took 60 hours of this and made yeah, it into yeah. an entertaining seven hours of content that really tells a complete story right. that has That's highs right. and, and lows. And there was a that was, there was a scene in there that, that wasn't video. It was audio-based where John and right. Paul are talking about, um, you know, they're trying to get George Harrison back in the band. And the, the crew on this documentary in the 1970s put a microphone hidden when they're having this this conversation about the the entire process and i just thought that that was genius and the fact that we had never heard that before was crazy to me um so yeah just like i, I know like the like the people that are hardcore into the beatles were all about it, it being this long but it really had to be 
yeah, I mean, to tell this story, and like you said, like, you know, if it's too much for you and you can't sit through it, you know, fast forward some parts, <laughs> like, you know, get to the end. It's okay. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's the same we're going to talk about with like Adele in a little <laughs> bit, you know, like if, uh, you know, an artist or director feels like that's how long it takes to tell the story and you want to watch the story, then, then that's the fucking story. Yeah. You know? what, what are you going to do about it? I mean, <laughs> at times I could have used an orc <laughs> or an ant or something yeah. to, you know, if like, if uh, an elf <laughs> just, you know, lanced through the room every once in a while firing an arrow, I might not have fallen asleep a couple of times. I'm not going to say I did it, you know, <laughs> but that's, you know, that's what, whenever something has been arduous, like, like. You, you know, we bring up Springsteen a lot. If they ever had this version of, of that band putting together Born to Run, it would be like like the same thing because, you know, oh, s yeah. sometimes things that are, are, are classics and great take a long time to put together and it is a massive sludge. Oh my God. If people had to watch things like that is when they would really lose their minds because, you know, when you're talking about a, a record like going into the studio to record Born to Run, like those songs were done. Yeah. You know, it was all about getting the perfect versions of those songs. So that's when you're about to watch, like, am I seriously watching, like, take 27 of this uh, second measure of bass on this song? Because that's what the real studio is like, you know? Like, there are times you look at your watch and you go, yeah, that's hour three of listening to nothing but isolated <laughs> bass guitar over the same verse you know or the same chorus yeah. it's it's that's that's what the process is actually like you know and and it could only be a, a documentary about the beatles that kind of would give us that kind of insight because nobody else would like sit through if it was like your like average right, band right. like like nobody else would like yeah. sit through that but it had to be unearthed footage of <laughs> right. like the biggest band in rock history right. for people to even bother yeah it's true so so there's so much to get in into here um you know i, I brought up epstein before um and and he's brought up in part two of this documentary um when they're sitting around trying to get get george back um and i just had kind of a a, a interesting reaction to this now when they filmed this uh mccartney's 28 i believe lennon right he, he was a, a few years younger four years i believe 24 now, these guys have had 10 years of experience in the music business, handling things which way and that. The fact that for the like the end of the Beatles run, they kind of couldn't get it together was super interesting to me, considering they were these smart guys that had this acumen of like all the different sorts of evolving mediums. Well, I mean, I think what you brought up is a fascinating part of it that I may actually be able to give insight to. Mm. So... You know, when I imagine the beat, like they started, they they were kids. Yeah. You know, very talented kids. Mm -hmm. Like you know, um, but there was a whole level of that industry on the management side of their band that they. It's not a, a knock to them. They did not have to pay attention to it. They had a whole another side of their thing that was a, an operation of their machine that was blind to them. And I think it was often like that in those days, you know, especially for young kids. Like you're at the mercy of these companies, these labels, these big shots. They make the rules. They have the money. There's like three people who can get you heard and you got to like kiss the ring. It was like a totally different 
scenario and they had someone to kind of you know that they really trusted who was almost like this other leg of the band who advised on everything from you know presentation to aesthetic to music like all these things very trusted and was there through the entire thing so to say uh you know at the peak of their success to lose that person is is a a massive loss especially when you didn't want to lose that like yeah. it's not like they fired their manager it was like just this piece of their operation a very large piece of their operation fell and now all of a sudden i think that's where i was maybe most fascinated with this documentary is now watching or biopic whatever it's called <laughs> is uh is 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 watching that dynamic be filled by Paul McCartney. You know what I mean? He was obviously the one like, you know, very early in the movie they show Paul is the one having these discussions with these other people from the labels and stuff about, oh, where are we going to set up? Where's the studio? Where are we doing this? Like it's it's obvious he has become the new conduit. I don't know if he was like declared into that role by the other guys, if he was just that person who naturally filled the vacuum or not that you know that's an interesting part to me too but like it or not if you don't have that piece that they lost like somebody in the band has to operate like that and so often the person who has to operate in that role in the band people start to resent for for a variety of reasons but let me be the first to tell you that like if you have fucking four George Harrisons, that shit's not going anywhere, <laughs> you know? And, and that's part of the dynamic that people like, I've been seeing kind of this like overarching, like, Oh, George, George is great. Listen, I love George. <laughs> okay. But as someone who's been like the shitty dude on the other side of this business, and I've had to from time to time, like someone like me resents George every once in a while. It's not easy to sit there and make like these beautiful things that he makes, but not everyone just gets to sit there lurched over their guitar, focusing on nothing but the creative process. Like not everyone gets to do that. And some other people have to deal with the other side of it. And to me in the documentary, it looked like John was kind of on his own path at this point and maybe a little checked out about that side of the business. And, you know, Ringo was just Ringoing. George was, you know, the the real, like, you know, let me bring in Hari Krishnas and focus on the <laughs> overall, like, thing. And then there was just Paul. It was like, I felt like he, he was kind of stuck, you know, in, like, this weird situation. And I actually, I felt bad for him. Did you feel that at all? See, so I saw someone that was extremely type A doing type A things here amongst a, a group of other people that were, uh, you know, I also got the sense that John Lennon was extremely type A, but had resigned himself to whatever the right. current situation was. Yes. And yes. I, I don't know how much someone like Yoko Ono played in that situation, um, which we'll get to that in a little bit. But the thing about George Harrison here, right, which, you know, I felt bad for him, as as did most people in this situation because he wasn't being listened to. But, you know, when you've had 10 years of adulation that, of, that Lennon and McCartney had, right, of, like, all of these great songs and, like, you two are, like, the guy, 
and and you have that like like third guy who's I'm not gonna say like he's equally as talented at, at, at what he does. He just doesn't do as many things as the other mm. two. It gets to be a, a interesting situation where this guy is like, this is not my vibe anymore. And you know what? Like I can't like creatively. The people that I do stuff with at at 16 are like not what I'm doing with people yeah. now. And there's the right. growth in those 12 years that it's like it's like you know it's it's kind of a tough bridge to cross. Yeah, that's where I wonder. It's like, was that time, you know, if, if was that the time that the Beatles needed to take a break? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like those really self-aware bands who were just like, oh, my God, we've been at it too hard, too long. Our manager died. You're listening. You know, you're hanging out over here with the Hare Krishnas. I'm, you know, having bourbon with the suits. And John's over here with, with Yoko doing his thing. And, like, we're all separate now like we all started in this you know we're all together we we're all in our little suits and we were young and we did it all together and now things are separate it was almost like watching the the musical manifestation of like the sociology break apart yeah. you know yeah yeah no it was it was crazy now the interesting thing where i kind of thought that both paul and john maybe di disrespected uh uh george harrison a little bit was when when uh you know george harrison leaves the band and he's like see you around the clubs or and even before then they're talking about bringing eric clapton in and so it's like i don't know if if, if that was a case of thinking he's replaceable or if they were just like you know what he does more of a sound that we want for this record so i saw that floating around that people were like oh the disrespect wanting to bring in eric clapton but i'm also like if you're doing if one guy wants to have a certain sound, that's fine. But if if two people that are the overarching vision for the project want to have a different sound, that should be acceptable and not perceived as a breakup. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. Yeah, yeah, maybe. I mean, this is where we got to wonder. I mean, like, even though we're getting such a close look into this, like, you know, like maybe there were so many other things in play at that point right. that we don't even see, you know, like didn't, didn't people like sleep with each other's wives and stuff when they were hanging out with the Maharishi and like, just imagine like, it's not like, like we're talking about, you know, I think we got to think of like the Beatles 10 years that we're talking about in yeah. like cat years or <laughs> dog years. You know what I mean? This isn't like a normal decade where people were like clocking in the work and shit like every day. <laughs> this was like 10 years of the one of the greatest bands in rock and roll history at their absolute peak, you know, going around the world with absolute, you know, adulation no one's ever seen before. Like, what is that doing to the people? What is that doing to their relationships? Like, you know, there's a whole nother element to this that, that we can never see. And that's that's where, you know, even as we're talking about it now, it really does feel like we were watching, like I said, like the musical manifestation of like an internal struggle with the band, which probably happens really often. We just happen to be witness to it this time. I love it. And, you know, something that stood out to me, too, about this is, uh, you know, just last week, I'm not your normal urban outfitter shopper, not really my favorite store, but we decide to uh, 
get some outfits for my nieces for Christmas. You know, very nice. I'm looking around. A lot of Beatles merch. A lot of Beatles merch all over uh, Urban Outfitters. There was a lot all around Barnes and Nobles today. And, you know, I, I don't say that from this like punk rock, like, ah, what are people doing getting in the Beatles kind of way? Because it's the fucking Beatles. Like you can't, you know, uh, be a capitalist about the Beatles. It's the most successful like rock band maybe ever. So, but I like when I see stuff like that, I still do. I like the fact that like my nieces and this younger generation are going to have this open window into something like the Beatles. And, uh, you know, maybe that's one of the upsides to the digital revolution is how easy things are to find. You know, when I used to have to try to find bands from my past, like I used to have to talk to creepy old guys with, semi gray greasy curly hair at record shows and tell them to turn me on to something and leaf through some bin and bring a record home and then ask another creepy old person about their story and maybe i'd see you know like but now the fact that you can be like oh who's the beatles and all of a sudden you're listening to their entire catalog you know the story you know the narrative like that's kind of cool and that's kind of i like the fact that that half of urban outfitters is like Beatles and Nirvana shit. So by the way, an iconic music placement. I, I know this isn't Beatles and I know that this is Paul McCartney later, but uh an iconic movie moment in Liquor's Pizza with Let Me Roll It. Oh iconic still, moment. So go still check yet it. to see. Still yet to see. But uh Benny, what's your number three story? I think I think I know where you're going here. Well little three to me was Lil Nas X. <laughs> Now, he came out, you know, with the Montero uh, video and song where he plays the devil, uh, very sexually plays the devil. Devil's getting down with some dirty business, as I assume probably would if the devil existed. And, uh, you know, I think the biggest part about this story, I guess, was like the vitriol it created, uh, you know, from the other side and people finding some new pariah that's apparently bringing down old American fundamentalism. Um, but, you know, now that we're like removed six months from this story, as usual, you know, Lil Nas X is aging like cheese and wine. He's doing very well, you know, like all the credibility in the world looks like he's set up for a, a long career. And I'm really starting to think Denny, that making the right wing irate early on in your career may be the best and most important key to long-term success. <laughs> so, so I think Lil Nas X might be a cue there. Like, like make sure to ruffle those feathers early. It means I think you're doing something right. And then they'll be like, "Oh, I loved her in Star Is Born" or "House of Gucci." Gotta see it. So <laughs> exactly, exactly. Lil Nas X is gonna be in like. You know, he's gonna be like 36 and get placed in a Scorsese movie in 10 years. And everyone's gonna be like, oh, how talented. Yeah, definitely. So, to uh, cap off number three for the year, Lil Nas X, uh, good artist, great song, and uh, gonna be sticking around for a while. Thanks, fundamentalists. And I love any time we get to talk about this guy on the podcast. Little Nas X back in the news uh, for a variety of reasons. So we're going (laughs) to try to break it down step by step. Uh, First things first, he put out a music video 
for uh, his new song Montero, which I just found out was his actual first name. So that's oh. interesting. Um, but the video has, however you want to look at it, uh, has him in the Garden of Eden, and then he's a devil, and then it goes, uh, he, he twerks on the devil, steals his horns, <laughs> this whole crazy thing. But I re- I'm, I'm, I'm really intrigued by Lil Nas X and what he brings to the music business because he is one of the first people that I've seen in the mainstream that is selling his music by trolling. And he's trolling alt-right conservatives. Um, and I think that this is a, a brilliant play. So, Benny, um, as someone who may or may not in the past have has sold tickets, music, all that stuff by trolling, what do you make of this in pop music now? Well, I want to back up a little bit yeah. in the idea that, like, I don't think it's straight trolling. Okay. I don't think he's sitting back thinking, what can I do to piss these people off, which is trolling. Yeah. I think he's just being unabashed about what he actually is and who he wants to be as an artist. And if that happens to be counter to what other people like and happens to be subversive, it doesn't necessarily mean it's trolling. To me, trolling is like, I am intentionally trying to piss you guys off. I think you might lean into it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, cause it's smart and uh, you gotta own it and you gotta go all the way if you're doing it. But I actually have an appreciation for the fact that this person is creating art uh, and creating music they care about and creating pieces they care about, which I do think it takes it out of the trolling thing a little. I mean, if you want to know my personal opinion, it could be summated like this. I hadn't really known what was going on with this the entire week. I even wrote a tweet at some point this week being like, the one good thing about being old is I was like, wait, Nas like Satan now? Because that's how much I knew about what was going on. So as usual, I didn't know exactly what was going on. And thanks to you, Denny Gallimer, my co-host, I have been opened up to a, a cultural revolution from you. I appreciate it. I really, I don't get that. If I didn't do the tune up, all these, a lot of these things would go over my head. <laughs> so I go ahead and I sit down and I wa- I'm going to watch the video. Same way I did with this Cardi B one where I'm like, all right, what's all the hubbub about? And literally the second I watched this guy fucking go down a stripper pole into hell <laughs> and start giving a lap dance to Satan, I lost my shit. To the point that my wife came upstairs to be like, yo, what's so funny? And I'm like, look at this shit. <laughs> so if you want to know my moral take on the whole thing, I think it's surmised right there. And the fact that like, no, I don't give a shit. Um, and I think it's kind of funny to watch it actually play out in art. But the one thing I'm going to consider is this. I remember a video that was hotly contested when I was a kid was Madonna's Like a Prayer. We're going to bring Madonna back into this again. (laughs) And I see that video differently now than I did as a kid. As a kid, I was like, wait, what the fuck is going on here? Is that person Jesus? What is this cross? What are they doing? And it did like actually bring up real questions to me that I'm like, what's going on here? Is, Is there inequity in religion? Like it actually like brought up some bigger things that made me think which makes me think that people of a young generation are taking it differently and maybe their parents and things like that do have 
not a right, but they are correct in assuming that it can be more influential over a child than it is an adult. That being said, here's where I'm going on it. It's biblical. The entire thing is biblical. He's literally playing out the Garden of Eden scenario, uh, you know, the forbidden fruit, the whole thing, and then going to see Satan. It's one thing that's always made me laugh about Satan and Satan worshipers in general is you're recognizing Christian existence by being that. And it seems as if the biggest uh, problem for you know Christianity and that uh, religion with the modern generation these days is even convincing them it exists and that it's real and that it's something you should take seriously. This video is an entire Christian concept. So he's literally leading us through religious discourse by lap dancing the devil. (laughs) It's true. It's true. And the other thing to kind of piggyback off of that is the, and we're going to talk about this in a little bit when we talk about Kevin Durant and Michael Rappaport and that whole thing. The all right Christian movement is propped up when they have things to be outraged about because that, right. and then that's how they get the airtime and all that stuff. I mean, we've seen the Westboro Baptist Church do this and all of this stuff. They look at music and all of this as a area for them to kind of get the platform, and then that is masked by, oh, morals should be in music. When that's not in the contract of entertainment all yeah. the time, there, there, there's been a lot of think pieces about what are the roles that ideas and all that stuff should play in like pop music. And if you want to put morals into a business, that's your prerogative, but don't kind of put that expectation on somebody else. And if the market determines, hey, this is what people want, this is a commodity, that person should be allowed to do it. But this yeah. all comes back to that the Christian platform, the, the alt-right, if you will, needs outrage to continue to try to get their message across and they look at someone like Lil Nas X, who's doing a lot for the LGBTQ community by being kind of uh, a role model for kids that are struggling with this in high school. And they're like, that's going to be our, our target. And that's the part that I have a problem with, with the quote unquote sure. outrage. Well, yeah. And, and it's biased outrage. It's using the concepts of confirmation bias to make your point. But this is literally the same fucking week, Denny, that 30 people were mowed down in two separate random shootings in this country. Mm. You know, if you literally are going to bat, falling asleep at night, upset about a 20-year-old kid dressing up like the devil, sliding down a stripper pole into a, a illusionary uh, Valhalla that doesn't actually exist, but you don't care about 30 fucking bodies that got mowed down this mm. week, well, there's your fucking problem with morality right there. All right, so the number two story is actually just happened this week during the holiday season, but it is the culmination of a story that we've been talking about all year long. It is the fact that Spider-Man No Way Home made $536 million at the domestic box office. That's not China numbers. That's not international numbers. That is people in the United States going to the movies during the holiday season, and we've talked all year. You know, we talked about the AMC stock thing when that was all, all happening. We talked about people not going to the movies, um, really concerning. And 
to see a movie in in this environment go for that kind of number was absolutely insane. So my number two story this year, Spider-Man saving movies, question mark? Yeah, I think this is a good one for... I don't, I don't remember exactly you, but at least me to eat crow a little bit because I think I completely buried the movie industry and under the assumption that it was totally dead. Um, and maybe people who run giant corporations are smarter than I think, uh, probably are. Uh, and, uh, you know, they are like making changes. And, and and honestly, I just came from the movies today. I brought my kids to see Encanto. Mm, and limo. what's cool, and, you know, something I maybe didn't consider about this new reality we're in is I found uh, an early showing. I was literally ordered seats that I know exactly where I am in the theater, know exactly how far apart I am from other people. And it was honestly one of the more safe indoor COVID things I could think of today while I had my kids. So in a weird way, you know, there there is a an element to it that that is carrying on in a different way. Like everything is transforming in funny ways, and I, I think the movies have figured out to a point. They've made it really easy to get in. It's this completely like seamless digital experience. The box office is pretty much out of the picture. You know, they're serving like proper food now, which you know you have to do. People want to go to the movies and eat fucking pizza and stuff now. <laughs> <clears throat> so it seems like it's surviving and I, and this is one where I'll kind of like happily eat crow like I was wrong and I'm happy I was wrong because I fucking love going to the movies and having that experience with my kids today with both of them having popcorn and each of them on each side of me it's 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 magical it really is like super special um and I was really happy about it today so I'm happy to take the number two story and and say that that I was wrong in a way that you're also kind of right, though, because Spider-Man is not like a period piece. It's not <laughs> like a like artist yeah. piece. It's like a big budget, big cast. It's all it's right. all of the things people want. I'm still very much worried about your like Manchester by the Sea like movies, like like a movie like Tender Bar, which has Ben Affleck in it, directed by George Clooney. I think that's going straight to Amazon. Movies like that, movies that yeah. have a particular artistic message, don't exactly have a home in the movie theater currently. But I also think that streaming, like I've said, is giving more people more opportunities. So, it, so is that the pecking order now? Maybe yeah. I mean, you know, it's like if you're this big budget thing, or you have weight behind it, like Paul Thomas Anderson or something, you can manage to do it. But if you're these middle of the road five to ten million dollar pictures. Uh, they used to get shelved or just not made, right? Yeah. And now they do. They get made and they're all over streaming. So, you know, maybe it's um, it's almost going to wind up being more like uh, two sets of Academy Awards or something like that. Like, like maybe that's the way this industry is going. Actually, one, one isn't going to take over the other. They're just going to maybe seamlessly exist. The way that I think we're going to roll out these movies going forward is they're going to start in like the big movie palaces in New York and LA. And it's almost going to be like a tour. So like the first weekend you do that Mm. and then you open in, in cinemas in Chicago, Austin, like these like artistic cities. Then you go to like a Seattle, like a Portland, your third weekend so that you've created so much buzz by the time you get your general release. I mean, that's what licorice pizza's done, right? Yeah. And 
it's in the Oscar conversation. And it's uh, for if it's not Paul Thomas Anderson, if there's not all of the speculation around it, that movie probably gets shelved. That's right. That's right. So, I mean, again, to bring her up twice, you know, I guess it's up to people like Paul Thomas Anderson who have some weight to toss that weight around a little bit in the uh, Adele and Spotify kind of way. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of music, Benny, w- drum roll, please. What is the number one story for the tune-up in 2021? Well, this one's pretty obvious because we cover it so much. It's interpolation. It's these artists we love, the Neil Youngs, Bob Dylans, Bruce Springsteens, countless others, all sorts of groups selling their entire catalogs to uh, hedge fund owners and whoever the fuck is buying these things. The the Illuminati is getting all of our publishing. That's what's happening. Um, But most recently, you know, the boss sold his catalog for $500 million. Uh, Content creators are being, you know, put in houses with, uh, you know, all uh, Bruce Springsteen's entire catalog now looking to chop up the songs and do something with it. We are in the midst of the future of the music business and we're watching all these uh, older artists go, I'm going to die in the next 20 years. Everyone's going to steal my music, make money off my music. So why don't I fucking sell it before I croak and give a half a billion dollar check to my family instead of letting this money ooze out around the music industry the way it's going to anyway. So I think... uh, it not only has changed the way that people are consuming music, it's going to change the way people are releasing music. I think you're going to see a lot more people attempting to self-release their own music, to own their own publishing, to stay out of this kind of mess in the future. Um, but I also think in the next 10 years, you're going to be hearing a shit ton of classic songs that you loved, and the choruses and verses popped into some 17 year old TikTok artist video. I don't mean to scare you. It's going to happen. Take it from your Uncle Morty. But the number one story this year is definitely music interpolation. It was crazy. All right. First headline today arguably the biggest trend in music right now is interpolation. I love that word. Interpolation. Sounds like something bees do. Uh, Interpolation is essentially where records in uh, records are made and songs are put out and they're borrowing beats and melodies from older hits. You know, you kind of have have that callback action. Look at comedy influencing music right here. Artists like Olivia Rodrigo, Ava Max, Lord, and Doja Cat have all had chart-topping songs on platinum hits using the concept. Um, for those of you wondering, the big difference between sampling and interpolating is sampling, you're kind of uh, using something but switching it up. Interpolating, you're just being like, hey, here's September by Earth, Wind, and Fire. I'm just going to record new lyrics to it. Uh, so I think that you know we're in a really slippery slope. Uh, it's something we've talked a lot on this pod about about rights to songs and everything so benny i kind of want to tee you up with this um i think that this is here to stay because the record companies are profiting off of this but what do you think that this has to say about the state of artistry for people well it's complicated first i want to step back to your original statement calling interpolating borrowing sampling was borrowing Mm. this is just taking yeah This is literally just taking part for part, piece for piece, and throwing it into your own song. And the only reason that's possible is because of all the stuff we've been talking about over the last like year or two. 
So essentially, we've we've had story after story, right? Dylan, Stevie mm-hmm. Nicks, all these people have been selling their entire publishing catalog for you know three hundred million dollars, five hundred million dollars, and one of the reasons we've been talking about it is making sense of why someone is paying that much money for this stuff. This is the original fallout of why that's happening because now they have the right with full ownership of this stuff, absolute and full control of these songs to take whatever you want, whenever you want and release it however you want it. So songwriting camps are not new. The idea of a lot of songwriters getting together in a room trying to muster up the next hit, uh, that's not unique. That's been going on forever. I know people who do it. Apparently, it's very bizarre. Hmm. Um, but, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's how this is done. And it's how when Beyonce has a hit, you see like 13 names credited with, you know, partial work on the uh, song. It's because of these camps. So... At first, I would like to be offended by something like this, the recording camps, the taking of music. But then, as usual, I dig into it, and I'm like, what did they bring to the table? (laughs) And apparently, you know, they were mixing, to speak of earlier, Bob Marley stirred up was part of the mix. I'm sure his kids aren't going to be thrilled about hearing, you know, whichever pop star add at into the mix. The other songs they were working on were Closing Time and Life is a Highway. You know, like some of the worst, cheesiest yeah. 90s songs that exist <laughs> that I could give a fuck if some young 18-year-old artist co-ops uses a hook from Life is a Highway that I couldn't stand in 1991 and makes it better now. Like, who right. gives a shit? But, you know, the opposite is going to happen, too, where some song that you hold near and dear and that you think is a classic and something that means a lot to you, you're going to hear some repossessed version of it um, through a young artist. Now, part of the reason this is profitable for these companies, and it's not the record labels anymore. The record labels also sold this publishing. The people making this money on it are these private equity companies scooping up all the licenses. You know, I'm talking hedge fund money, like beyond me and you money you know oh thank you for putting me in your tax bracket (laughs) (laughs) you got a beautiful apartment i've seen it but you know so here's here's where i want to talk people off a ledge a little okay so one of the reasons this is very profitable for these companies is that since they own every piece of the music inside they receive royalties on the new artist production. Then they also own the previous artist one. So if all of a sudden 18 year old kids are learning who Stevie Nicks is going back and downloading her old songs, they're also making money on those downloads. So it's kind of like this double stream on a, you know, like what happened to queen in Wayne's world or something, or, Ozzy Osbourne being on a Post Malone record, like, you know, a generation of people were opened up to a former band because of this. Now, this is the reason why we're pinpointing the reason why these companies spend so much money on these stuff now. This was part of the plan was to reintroduce these songs, repackage them for a younger audience. 
the thing I want to do to take you off a ledge is who cares? And the one thing I want to talk about is like when I walk around and I see a little kid in a Nirvana shirt, Smashing Pumpkin shirt, replacement shirt, some band, of course you didn't see. <laughs> These people were long dead or broken up before you ever would have had the chance. But I don't look at those kids and go, oh, fuck you. You should be wearing an Olivia Rodrigo shirt. I look at those kids going, yo, rad. Nirvana's still around. The replacements are still around. Rock and roll's still around. Music I love is like converting to the next generation and staying relevant. Why the fuck should I care if like rich people are getting richer and all this, you know, like I don't want to get into the minutia of that with music. I am stoked if like a legion of 18 year olds out of nowhere are like replacements fans. That's fucking cool to me. And that's something that can happen to this and make it stay relevant. There you have it. The 10 biggest stories of 2021. Well, maybe not biggest, but they, they biggest are. For biggest, biggest for us. Biggest for us. Biggest for the tuna. It I didn't want been... a damn bummer here, you know? <laughs> not why people listen to us. That's right. People want to be uplifted. And you know what? Depending on if you're glass half full, glass half empty, you can look at interpolation like, hey, at least these songs live on in a way. So. I, I think there's a lesson uh, to take from a lot of things like that. And as I get older, I have an easier time taking it, Denny. And it goes like this. Who gives a fuck? <laughs> that was a great Robert De Niro impression, by the way. <laughs> oh, man. But 2021 for us here at The Tune-Up has been a remarkable year, a great year of growth. Can you believe our first episode of 2021 was episode 69, and you are currently listening to episode 114. So, wacky. We made it, Denny. That's right. It's been nice doing business with you, kid. High five. <laughs> oh, man. That sounded like a like, like, like a serious finale sign off and not like, a, hey, we're going to a brand new year. So, oh, man. But thank you. Not what I was doing. Not what I was doing. <laughs> but thank you so much for listening all year long. Yeah, As always. It. Plenty of ways to get in contact with the show. You can email us at the tuneuppodcast at gmail.com. Two P's in there. You can follow us on all of the social platforms, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And for YouTube, subscribe to our YouTube page. Some interesting stuff coming up 2022. Some uh, maybe Tune Up Live. Who knows? Um, if you want to follow the big man, he is at Benny Horowitz. One, number one in your mind, number one in your heart, number one on Twitter. I am at Denny underscore Gallagher. Benny, you got anything else? 2022, baby. Everybody love everybody. Peace. The show has ended. The year has ended. Everybody go in peace. You've been listening to The Tune-Up.